Hello, and welcome back to Resonant Reels, the movie podcast where we talk about all kinds of movies and audio lens and TV shows, too, because that's what we do. Mostly. I'm Chandler. I'm Adam. And we're a little rusty. It's been it's been a little bit for us. It's been a chaotic new year. There have been emergency surgeries and ice apocalypses and broken laptops. So we're having a really great time out here. Yeah, we set ourselves up for success before the end of the year by like banking a bunch of episodes. Little did we know we would go past that. So like we apologize for the week off that has happened, and this episode's probably going to be out late as well. It's just the circumstances. We apologize profusely. But I had to get emergency oral surgery on January 2nd, and I was kind of just out for like at least a week, and it was crazy. And then I got stuck on a bus in Eugene, Oregon for three days with no uh, heat or hot water or power um, because of an ice storm. So that happened. And then in the midst of that, my laptop display and battery died. So here we are. Such a crazy set of events to start off the new year. But, you know, we're kicking off strong, I feel like. Yes. Anyways, so this episode, we're talking about musicals. Right, Adam? Yes, my one of my favorite topics in the world, um, which I know how that sounds. Um, I've always identified myself as, even in high school, it's like, oh, the theater kids. I always identified as a kid who did theater. Um, and I feel like there is a distinct difference uh, between a theater kid and a kid who does theater. That being said, I have a very profound appreciation uh, for musicals, um, and therefore I am excited to die into these. Um, so my pick for this week was Chicago, the 2002 film. The reason I specify there is a 1927 film is not the one that I picked specifically picked the 2002 film. First of all, directed by Rob Marshall. Okay. It, the original show is a Candor and Ebb production and it's Bob Fosse. It, everything about Chicago is Fosse. And I feel like this movie encompasses that really, really well. You made a face. Do you do you agree? Because I was curious because I, I was genuinely curious because I know about some of like the the original production of Chicago because it's Bob Fosse, right? Like everyone like Bob Fosse is such a like pivotal choreographer for theater throughout the like the 50s through like the 80s, I think was his kind of span of his career peak. I mean, his style is just very, it helped revolutionize movement on stage with musical numbers. And it became inspiration for a lot of later choreographers. Like you can definitely see the inspiration in Westside specifically, I would say, of inspiration from Fosse. Absolutely. This movie, they really just packed with stars. So Renee Zellweger and Catherine Zeta-Jones are our two like leading ladies uh, of the film. But we also have Richard Gere, who is our suave, you know, like uh, lawyer. Queen Latifah uh, is in this movie as uh, the matron Mama Morton. Christine Baranski is making another appearance in the podcast, which I'm perfectly fine with, as Mary Sunshine, which I'll talk about. Tay Diggs is in this, Lucy Liu. Like, it is, it, there is really, like, there are so many, there are so many stars in this movie. I had to do a double take on Tay Diggs because I was like, is that, 
because he's an MC throughout. So it's like really hard to like pinpoint. And I was like, I recognize that voice. I just don't see him because the movie is very jump cutty. So it, like it doesn't focus a lot. So it's really hard. I was being distracted with how much it kept cutting around to like different shots and everything. So it was really hard to like keep me sucked in. Personally, it was just too fast at times for me for this kind of musical. So here's my my personal feelings is that I feel like musicals do not often translate well to movies. I have not personally seen it yet. I'm excited to see the new Mean Girls movie musical. I have not been hearing wonderful things regarding the specifically the new orchestrations um, of the music. Um, and people are really upset because I think there's this, this I don't know, idea that exists now that did not exist in the early 2000s, like when this came around, with this idea of something being cringy or something being cringe. And the reality is, a lot of times, a musical is gonna have cringe to it like it's a it's a musical the entire idea is that like when a song happens it's because just normal speaking without music is no longer powerful enough to express that moment and that is why we have a dance break or a musical number i think that this one in particular was done so so well now what i will say now being a part of a Chicago entity and I I'm I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to be sparse about what I talk about because it is my my job and my work. Chicago as a a unit, there are many 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 hands in the pot when it comes to producers and directors and choreographers and the way things were done, are done, have always been done, will be done. And I have to imagine that this movie got the exact same treatment that every tour every Broadway cast, every actor who is doing Chicago that is underneath the, you know, Chicago razzle dazzle umbrella receives. And so I don't think that with this particular show, there was a world where they were going to let this movie flop. And I I love it. I, I think it's so good. So very interesting because like this came out in 2002 and I I've been into musical film a lot because like it disappeared for a good like decade or so in Hollywood because Hollywood stopped liking musical film. Like musical film helped get butts and seats in movie theaters throughout film history. Like throughout like the 1930s through the 70s, it got butts and seats and it was some of the best selling films out there. But like when we got to the 90s, it started being really bad hit or miss. And like Chicago seemed to be like the last one at the turn of the century there for like a good decade until we saw La La Land and La La Land got a bunch of praise and stuff, which helped push other people to start doing more film musical. And that's why we have like a bunch of these live action adaptations of musicals now from stage, like crazy everywhere. Because because Moulin Rouge came out the year before Chicago. Moulin Rouge came out in 2001. Yeah. They, and, and I also really love Moulin Rouge uh, as a movie. I think it's yeah it's very interesting and then i look at something even more recent like the dear evan hansen movie musical and how much like backlash that one got which is understandable um if you've if you know the if you know the show versus having watched the movie i will say i think that things are getting ripped apart more than like what they deserve to be ripped apart because the internet is a cruel cruel place but 
I the movie musicals just aren't what they used to be. Yeah, I mean, people are trying to reinvent it. Like Lin Manuel Miranda was like in the Heights was trying to reinvent the style of film musical, which I think was really interesting. But people weren't on board for it yet because it was a lot of stylistic choices, and people are like, it just didn't feel real. I'm, and I'm like, it's a musical. It's not real. That's that's exactly exactly what I was trying to hit on. That's been the biggest thing is like it seems like mass audiences want realism and the reality is that musicals don't have elements of realism inherently throughout them and that's that's the biggest criticism i've heard about the mean girl movies so far so far is um that it's clear that the directorial style was trying to make it a lot more like real a lot a lot more authentic and believable with the the different shots and the orchestration of the music and like how they break out into song and it's like Mm, but it's it's about like crazy mean hormonal teenagers there's nothing like subdued about that like let them burst out into song i don't know i'll watch it and give a a a recap so my my synopsis of chicago basically because this is another movie where I, i would argue there aren't necessarily a bunch of plot points there's like a plot point and then there's everything that happens because of that plot point So we have our, technically, who is our main character, which is Roxy Hart. And Roxy Hart is played by Renee Zellweger. She is your classic, like, I want to be, what now would be like, I want to be on Broadway, is I want to be a a, a vaudeville star. Um, Because remember, this takes place in the the 1920s. Um, I believe 1924 is specifically when, when they set this movie. She has this husband whose name is Amos, who's played by John C. Riley, which is also crazy to see him in a role like this at all. Amos is just a little mouse like a like a little skittering shy like doesn't really know what's going on like very simple like when you think when when you would call somebody simple that is Amos Hart and Roxy is not that at all Roxy is full of energy and life and Roxy is having an affair and her affair is happening with this man named Fred Casely. Essentially, in the movie, it, it becomes clear to us that like he has promised her that he can get her into the vaudeville world. And there is an allusion to the fact like, okay, they just, you know, hooked up, whatever. He goes to leave. And there's an argument that happens between the two of them where Fred is basically like, yeah, I'm surely just using you for sex. Like nothing is ever actually going to come out of this. And Roxy snaps and she grabs a gun and she shoots and murders Fred Casely. That is our inciting incident. That is where everything else from here on out comes from so uh we get amos who just will believe anything that roxy says and so roxy is like this was uh, a attempted break-in and i i had to shoot him but they're gonna send me to jail because i'm a woman and blah, blah 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 so i need you to like take the fall for this and he's like okay sounds good and so amos starts taking the fall for this literal murder initially like the cops are like okay well you know you're protecting your your house your home you know whatever in asking questions uh in being interviewed uh the cop's name is fogarty 
he reveals that Roxy has actually been having this affair. And so Amos is immediately like, well, surely I'm taking my statement back. He recants everything, um, tells the police that Casely was dead when he got home and cue our song, Funny Honey. It is a moment where we see that we are going to bounce back between this dream world and reality um because our our first song is technically the overture and all that jazz um that starts out the movie before we even see this uh you know roxy heart thing however the way that it's done in the movie which is really cool roxy is watching the current vaudeville star velma kelly sing that at a nightclub so that is technically still a realistic moment that is happening i think that's cool i i dig that a lot i i really liked that particular take on it um so then to go from that to our first dream sequence in funny honey which is starts off with uh roxy singing about like Oh, I love him so much and he loves me so much. Look at my funny honey. He's so good to me. And then when Amos takes a statement back, all the lyrics start changing and she calls him like dummy, crummy. She's like, she calls him stupid, like, uh, like says she can't stand that sap, like all this stuff. Um, and it ends with Roxy being arrested and the district attorney, uh, Harrison says like, Oh, well, you know, that's a, that's a, uh, cold-blooded murder they could you know hang you for that and so now we realize like oh like there are stakes here like roxy's going to jail and roxy's basically going to be fighting against being executed by hanging first we get introduced to matron mama morton um which is queen latifah and oh my god uh i just love the this this song sung by queen latifah i think it's so good it's so good and the thing about all these individual numbers is that they're windows into the characters so funny honey was a window into roxy of like she is in anybody's court uh as long as they are doing something for her and the minute they're not she is going to dip from that lost everything with mama's song it's all about uh literally her opening line is like um this because the system works the system called reciprocity so we learn that mama's gonna mama's willing to do anything for you as long as you give something to mama in return and uh i feel i love the direction in this as well because as she's singing the song um you know we see her slide cigarettes to somebody and she gets some cash back um you know through some dialogue we find out like she'll make special phone calls to people as long as she's getting paid for it um everything has a price but everything has a price so you know there is nothing that's that's necessarily off limits my favorite little cameo that exists in this is as Roxy makes her entrance into the Cook County Correctional Facility, there is someone who is like smoking a cigarette and has a very brief exchange with Roxy. That is Cheetah Rivera, who actually originated the role of Velma Kelly on Broadway. I think that is such a wonderful homage to anybody who knows the stage musical. Also, shout out because she, Cheetah Rivera, wrote our company a lovely 
opening night letter, just like saying how excited she is that, you know, Chicago continues to live on and blah, blah, blah. And uh, the the um, stage management laminated it. So it's on the call board at every location we go to, which is very cute. But yeah, so there, she's in it for literally a brief moment, smoking a cigarette and has like a one line exchange with with Renee Zellweger as Roxy. Um, but it 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 was a, it was a cute little pop up. And then we get the song that probably everybody and their mother knows, even if you don't know Chicago, and it's the Cell Block Tango. And if you don't know it, I'm sorry. I don't know. I just like <laughs> go listen to it, go watch it. Like it's awesome. It's 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 so notorious because I was like, oh yeah, this is that thing in this yeah musical. Yeah, I forgot this was in yes, this for a hot minute. It is. It is this one. It is this is the song that people know, even if they don't know Chicago. It's actually also very funny because a, a friend of mine, when we were just in Vegas, came to see the show and she texted me at intermission and, and was like, I literally had war flashbacks when the Cell Block Tango started because there's also something about this particular number that high school girls love to do for like Broadway showcase style like things uh, in theater departments. And I'm not joking. We at my high school, this song was done every single year and sometimes multiple times a year because it would be the original and then a parody would be written. Um, I myself was in one of them my senior year. I was in a parody of the Cell Block Tango where I was actually guest on as uh, as one of the Cell Block girls. So this is your uh, Pop 6 Squish uh-uh, Cicero lip shits. Uh, he had it coming. You know, he only had himself to blame. That is the whole song. So we have the Merry Murderesses uh, of the Cook County Jail. We are learning these, uh, I believe, six individual stories. And we never see any of the other girls in this again, except for Velma Kelly. Um, Velma Kelly is one of the women in these little monologues. And this is also where we learn Velma Kelly is no longer on the stage at uh, the Onyx Chicago nightclub performing all that jazz. She's in jail. Our, uh, I, I, I'm going to do the the honor of uh, briefly saying um, why all of these women are in jail. Um, so number one, Pop, her husband wouldn't stop popping his gum. So she took the shotgun off the wall and she fired two warning shots into his head. The end. Um, six, she met this guy. Actually, all of these women have names in the in the movie in the musical, which you never learn. Um, so Pop is Liz. Uh, Liz Liz shot her husband in the head for popping gum. Then we have Annie. Annie met this guy in Salt Lake City. Um, they were living together. They were having a great time. And then she found out that he was not single. He had six wives. Um, there's a very crude joke that's like one of those Mormons, you know. And then she slipped him arsenic. Uh, so that's how she killed him then we have june who uh her husband was accusing her of having an affair with the milkman um and then he ran into her knife and he ran into her knife 10 times um so that's what happened there then we have which is it feels so weird to address this character by this name but we have hunyak um which is in modern times, definitely considered more of a slur towards like Hungarian people. But that is literally the character's name is Catalan Hunyak. And she does not speak English at any point throughout the movie with the only words in English that she says are not guilty. The Hungarian that she does speak is absolute gibberish. Uh, it doesn't necessarily translate to anything of actual like 
it, it, you can kind of get like a vague there's something about like an axe and a husband and um she didn't kill him right but the words don't actually translate to something super legible and uh i i apparently that was just because they just wanted it to sound a particular way so they found words that that made it sound the way that they wanted it to uh, you know auditorily sound and so her her thing ends with like her speaking in Hungarian and then June pops in and she's like, yeah, 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 but did you do it? And she goes, uh-uh, not guilty. The end. That's all we ever hear her say is like, uh-uh, and not guilty. And then we have Velma Kelly has her monologue and we find out she has this double act with her sister. She is at the Hotel Cicero and she's there with her husband as well. And the three of them are boozing, having a few laughs. And then I'm literally quoting the monologue uh, because of how many times I've heard this. I'm at probably, I think, 65 currently. Um, she ran out of, they ran out of ice. So she went out to get some. When she comes back, opens the door, there's Veronica and Charlie doing number 17, the spread eagle. And then she doesn't actually say what happened to them because she says that she blacked out. She can't remember a thing. And it wasn't until later when she was washing the blood off her hands that she even knew they were dead. That's all we know. We don't know how they, how she killed them, but the way it's presented is it's obvious she killed them, but she's keeping up this, this facade of, I didn't do it. I can't remember. I have the tenderest heart in the world, blah, 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 blah. What I think is always interesting, and I haven't quite been able to figure out why this is yet, is that Velma Kelly is not the last cell block girl to monologue. And I've always wondered why they didn't put her last since she is the only actual character that we're following out of any of these stories. But after Velma Kelly, we have Mona. Mona is our Lipschitz. She said she's dating this artist and he was always trying to find himself. Every night he'd go out looking for himself. And on the way, he found Ruth, Gladys, Rosemary and Irving. And um, she says, I guess we, you can say we broke up because of artistic differences. I uh, He saw himself as alive and I saw him dead. We have these six women who all murdered these guys and the direction of this i feel like i really liked so during all of these monologues um we're in this dream sequence again and they're doing like these tangos um with these unnamed male dancers who are just like there all of uh all of it is kind of like done very beautifully and then there are these red scarves um and these red scarves like come out when they get to the part of like that guy actually dying and the choreography is sharp the choreography is beautiful um and it really really gets the point across how this differs from the stage musical is there are no men on stage at all the girls just sit in chairs uh and they tell their stories directly out the the direction that actually um uh just recently got kind of clarified and, and given is that in the stage musical, they're actually supposed to be telling these stories to like the jury is, is sort of like what the vibe is supposed to be there. Um, which I think is, I think is a, a really cool way to look at it. There is an iconic bootlegged recording of Chicago, the musical on YouTube from 2007. If you do nothing else, but go watch the cell block monologues, it's my absolute favorite because I think there's a lot of room here to say that in most productions, and this movie included, I don't feel bad for the men who died. I actually am like, mm, these all seem like 1920s kind of abusive men, and these women had it. In the 2007 bootleg recording, these women are 
crazy. Um, they are absolutely directed to be batshit. Um, and it is so funny. Please go watch it. Please. I'm, I'm, I'm begging you. It is one of my favorite things if you need a laugh. But that is the only version where I've ever been like, oh, they... These poor guys, like the only one, even this one, I'm like, okay, these poor women are now in jail and they're probably all going to die. So at the end of that song, we get Roxy and um, Mama and we kind of get Roxy and Velma's first little blip together as well, um, because Roxy obviously knows Velma Kelly. She's a vaudeville star. And what does Roxy want to be? She wants to be a vaudeville star. Velma Kelly just blows her off like has doesn't you know doesn't care doesn't have anything to do with her whatever and that that clearly like that gets Roxy down on her spirits a little bit but then mama starts talking about Velma's lawyer Billy Flynn and how Billy Flynn's the best lawyer in all Chicago and Roxy uh is like well how do I you know how do I get Billy Flynn and obviously reciprocity what can you do for mama uh that that mama can get you connected with Billy Flynn Let's talk about Billy Flynn, played by Richard Gere. I think any woman who is 55 or above who has seen this movie has a crush on Richard Gere as Billy Flynn. Um, the amount of times that I've been sitting in the house at my audio console listening to these um, older women walk in talking about Richard Gere in the movie is more than I can possibly tell you, um, which I think is so fun and so cute. Also, shout out to our stage Billy Flynn because he's awesome and I think he absolutely uh, lives up to the the, the charm. Billy Flynn, uh, his entrance is just flashy and and slimeball lawyery in the best possible ways. Um, and Billy Flynn's song is All I Care About, which the whole song is like, all I care about is love. Um, and, and he's like, I don't care about diamond rings or Packard, uh, Packard cars, big cigars. I don't care about any of that. All I care about is love, which is so funny because it costs $5,000 to hire Billy Flynn as your lawyer. Um, and five grand in 1924. Let's think about that. He starts the musical number again. Um, this is a difference from the from the stage, which I really enjoy. But he's like shining somebody's shoes. So he's playing this very like low status, like kind of guy. And he's like, oh, it's it's songs all about me. OK, like here I go. And we get Billy Flynn surrounded by women. Um, that's the predominance of this this song as well. So we know like, oh, not only is he kind of slimy just in his career, Billy Flynn's like slimy with women as well. Um, and that is how the stage musical is directed. Um, he does not ever play low status. Billy Flynn always comes in in his suit. He is always like his his first lines of the show are literally he appears in a spotlight and he's like, is everybody here? Is everybody ready? And then the audience erupts in applause. And then he literally looks at the conductor and goes, hit it. And then the, the music for all I care about big band explodes and starts the song. Um, but it is Billy Flynn in a suit surrounded by all of the chorus girls with these like giant feathered fans. And so that is something that is very similar in the movie um, is it's just all of these women very kind of skimpily dressed fawning over Billy Flynn. That's that's 100% what happens. Flynn and Roxy 
are now working together and he's like, all right, so here's what we're going to do. I'm going to basically rewrite the story of your life. We're going to, I'm going to say like, oh, you um, were like a convent girl and like, you don't know who your parent, like you're an orphan. Your parents died. Like basically coming up with like every possible I don't know, storyline moment to get sympathy from the press. Because if nothing else, this movie is truly about the way the media reports crime. I think that you can take out everything else from this movie. And that is that is what you have. The, the reporters and what the reporters think, what the reporters say, what the reporters do actually drive this film and drive this story. Roxy goes on to say like that she had the affair with uh Casely because Amos was always working and she felt neglected by Amos and all of this stuff, but she repented and she tried to leave Fred Casely for Amos because she realized what she was doing was wrong and immoral and Casely was jealous and attacked her. Boom, next song we get, we both reached for the gun. And this is Flynn's entire defense for Roxy, which is that Casely got angry, went to reach for a gun that Amos had at the home. Roxy also went to reach for the gun. There we go. We both reached for the gun. I love the way that this... I keep saying that, but I just think this movie's so good. It is like all of the reporters are little like puppets. And as and the thing is, Roxy is also a puppet. Um, the only one who's not a puppet is Billy Flynn. He is literally a puppeteer. He is pulling the strings about what the reporters think about Roxy. And he's also he's got his like hand on Roxy's back and he's using her like a Mary, uh, not a marionette. The reporters are marionettes. What am I thinking of? Ventriloquist doll. Ventriloquist. Thank you. Yeah. 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 And like, he is talking for her. So he puts on this like kind of like accented voice or whatever um, that he's like, he uses to speak when he's speaking as Roxy. It's very impressive to go back and forth between like that voice and his normal voice of like, I'm Billy Flynn. Now I'm Roxy. I'm Billy Flynn. Now I'm Roxy. It's we just watched this number that's directed so beautifully of him in real time manipulating what the reporters think about her. And ultimately, he convinces the press to become obsessed with Roxy Hart and she becomes an overnight sensation. Everybody now wants to know who is Roxy Hart? Can we report on her? Tell us more things about her. And because that happened, Velma Kelly has fallen from the public eye. And now Velma Kelly is in a place of uncertainty, of her fate, because uh, there's actually a line between Amos and and Billy Flynn. That's I, I don't remember exactly what it is in the movie. It's referenced in the movie, but the in the stage music uh, stage musical, um, the line is uh, she'll be the hottest little thing since Velma Kelly. And so, literally saying like, okay, Velma Kelly is the one that's in the press right now. Let's spin this. How do we get Roxy up there? Because if you're in the media, if the media likes you, you're not going to get hanged. You're not going to die. You know. So Velma now kind of goes back and she's like, well, shit, I, you know, made a, a horrible first impression on this Roxy girl, didn't give her the time of day. And now I need Roxy to join me. So she tries to like schmooze Roxy a little bit and is like, hey, hint, 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 hint. Like, what if, uh, what if you and I like got together? Like you could replace my sister in this vaudeville routine that we used to have. But now that Roxy is 
thriving in this publicity. And we watch Roxy turn into like a, a not even a different person, but we see that part of her that was always there come out, which is like, no, no, no. Now I'm the popular one. Like, it's me they want now. And, and I'm a star and I'm a big star single. And so she snubs Velma right back. And we get this song, I Can't Do It Alone, when Velma is trying to convince uh, Roxy. It's, it's a song of desperation. Like, Velma is literally desperate. And it's like, you kind of see it because she's singing and dancing. And she's trying to be, like, convincing to her. And it's just, you see the desperation everywhere through the physicality, through the the singing lines. It's just, it's everywhere. And she's in desperation and doesn't convince Roxy because it's a flip for Roxy of a power dynamic because Roxy was trying to get in with Velma because she, at the beginning of this movie, when she was first committed to prison, she was like, if I get on the good side with Velma, then I could be the duo act with her and I can get out of here and not be hanged and, you know, be my own star again. But Velma, like, completely disowned her in the beginning of the movie. And now it's just this flip. And it's you just see the desperation from someone who had so much power that it's immediately gone. And all of these numbers are being introduced by Tay Diggs, the MC. So when we have these fantasy songs... They're being introduced as vaudeville numbers, which is really dope to do in the movie. It's it's it translates so well because these numbers are also all introduced in the stage musical, but there's not an MC character. It's sometimes it's an ensemble member. But for example, in the stage musical with this number, um, Matron Mama Morton introduces the song because it's her and Velma actually having dialogue right before. And she actually has the line. She says, ladies and gentlemen, um, Miss Velma Kelly in an act of desperation. And then I can't do it alone starts. It's it's cool that they kept the MC as a or made the MC a character, kept those introductions and made all of these numbers vaudeville routines that are kind of these vaudeville dream sequence things. Yeah, because these these dream sequences literally aren't in the prison anymore. They go to like their own vaudeville stage. And it's a really interesting stylistic choice because I was sitting here being like is the stage version of Chicago like this? Because I don't think it is. I think they're kind of like in prison the whole time doing this, but it is like a bit of like over the top out of this world a little bit because of the constraints of a stage version of it. But I like the style choice in this case. What I think works about this movie is if they tried to do it like the like the music, the stage musical, it wouldn't translate well because the stage musical is about the dancing. There is There are no scenic changes. It's a bandstand show. The orchestra is on stage the whole time. It is, it is about the story and the actors. The lighting is amazing. Shout out Tony Award winning Ken Billington. It is beautiful, beautiful lighting. It is beautiful orchestration sound. But what you're what you're watching is you're watching the actors. You're not watching spectacle. There is no there's no spectacle. Everybody is dressed in black the whole show. There's no like the color that you see is in the lighting. That is the color that you see in Chicago. And what this movie does really well is it takes advantage of the fact that it's a movie without losing the original integrity of those numbers of those characters. I 
adore it. After Velma gets snubbed, we have this pop-up character, which I never realized was Lucy Liu, but it totally is Lucy Liu, which is crazy. And in the movie, her name is Kitty Baxter. In the stage musical, she's literally just called Go to Hell Kitty. And she's a wealthy heiress. And this is a really like hitting moment to to drive home to the people watching that this movie is the story, whatever it's about the media because she is a super rich heiress. And I don't remember if they mentioned this in the movie. Uh, again, we kind of watched these movies a while ago uh, because of, we thought we were going to be able to record. So I have the musical more in my head right now, but um, in the, in the movie or in the stage musical, it's like, her father owns all the pineapples in Hawaii. Like, that's why she's rich. Uh, I, I think so, in the movie, they did, like, lemons or oranges in Florida or something. Yeah, it was a fruit. It's definitely, gotcha. like, a fruit thing. Yeah. Great. She is now the one who is immediately in the focus of the media. And Roxy is getting ignored by the press. All of the press is in the jail. And all they care about is talking to Kitty. Mama snubs her. Billy Flynn snubs her. The reporters are snubbing her. And Roxy's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, what do I do? What do I do? And immediately Roxy thinks on her feet and she faints. And of course, Roxy Hart was in the media and she just fainted. What's wrong with Roxy Hart? And they all run to her and she's like, oh, don't worry about me. It's just that I'm going to have a baby. And she has now faked a pregnancy. And we get this wonderful moment of Velma having this look of like, you've got to be absolutely fucking kidding me of mama being like this girl would do anything and Billy Flynn just jumping on the opportunity to like further push Roxy Hart's narrative. Amos is there, is completely ignored by the press and he's just like, I'm the father, I'm the father and Roxy like looks at him throughout through the like car carriage like window but like doesn't look at him and that is where we get Amos's song uh, called Mr. Cellophane which I feel like might go above like some younger generation's heads because it's like you know saran wrap and all of that uh it's so it's basically just a a a giant joke on how everybody just looks right through him like he doesn't exist so he's literally saying i am saran wrap like that's 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 me a fun fact i found out about this is apparently john c Riley has a huge like thing for uh, clowning and is like very interested in clowns and he actually it was his choice during this song be putting on the clown makeup and he actually also designed his own clown makeup and and did it himself like for real uh while while he was singing Mr. Cellophane. Um, so it was his idea to incorporate the application of that music that or that makeup during the number. In the stage musical All you see him do is put on white gloves, which white gloves are a very vaudeville period, uh, like costume piece sort of thing. The big thing in the stage musical is Amos putting on these white gloves as he's singing Mr. Cellophane. Um, And so in the movie, to see him do that and put on this clown makeup, I thought was, again, driving home the they're doing a vaudeville routine. So Amos is obviously like, well, surely it's my kid. And there's a conversation that happens between Flynn and Amos, uh, Billy Flynn and Amos, where Billy Flynn's like, I need to get more sympathy for Roxy. So how do I do that? I get Amos to divorce her. How do I do that? 
I tell him it's Fred Casely's kid, but I don't tell him. I make him come to that conclusion on his own. And so in Roxy's statement, the timing of when she said her and Amos last copulated does not line up with her pregnancy. And so Amos comes to the conclusion himself of like, oh my God, that's not my kid. That happens. And then Roxy and Billy Flynn start to have an argument and start to get into it. And Roxy has now gotten too big for her britches and she fires Billy Flynn. He's like, okay, hang. And he has these really nice lines of like, because she's like, the press love me. And she's like, and he, he says something along the lines of like, yeah, they'd love you a lot more if you were hanged. You know why? Because it would sell more papers. Meaning like, don't think that this has anything to do with you. Like, you're not special. You're just some like dumb common criminal that I'm making a star right now. And it's right after that. We, this whole time it's been set up. Cook County has never hung a woman in uh, 47 years. The first person to get hung is Catalin Hunyak. In this movie, she goes by the last name Halinski, um, which is still Hungarian. It's always Hunyak. I don't know. They, 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 they call her that anyway throughout the film. In this moment, they say Catalin Halinski. She becomes the first person in Cook County history to be executed by hanging. And she is the only one who insists the entire time that she's innocent. And what is special about this is that it is known to the audience that she is the only one in the entire show, in the entire movie, who actually is innocent of anything outside of Amos. And she is the one who gets killed by the state. That happening makes Roxy come to her senses and be like, oh shit, like this is actually something that my life could potentially depend on. <laughs> what a concept. And so she rehires Billy Flynn. And the trial begins, and this is where a lot of, uh, this is actually um, where the biggest difference, I think, between the stage musical and the movie musical happens, is that we get Razzle Dazzle by Billy Flynn, and it's during the trial. And he's basically, it's, it's the number that a lot of people know. Again, it's all these women 55 and up who are like Richard Gere, Razzle Dazzle. Like that's, it's, it's everything that they want because he is treating it. He says, uh, it's all a circus kid. And it's like, how can they see with sequins in their eyes? You know, give them the old razzle dazzle, basically like make them believe whatever I want them to believe. We, we, we see that happening as he's going through. And we also have Mary Sunshine, who is our like lead reporter. She's the only one who actually has a name. You can tell that she's kind of like this big deal. And part of that is because she was, well, that's a difference, but whatever. Um, she, she is the one who's reporting on the radio everything that's happening in the courtroom. And um, sh and this is the first time that that's been allowed to happen. So we have those reporters, those newspaper reporters, but her as a radio personality, this is like groundbreaking that there is somebody in the courtroom who is allowed to and actively is describing this case over the radio for everybody to publicly listen to. Flynn goes in and he's doing his charming thing. He's discrediting witnesses. He's talking about evidence that he's like kind of manipulating. And he even manages to get Roxy and Amos to reconcile in the courtroom publicly when she claims that the child is his. Because as far as Amos knows, he came to that conclusion himself. And that's what Flynn points out. He's like, you didn't even ask her if you were the father of your child. Um, and so she's like, of course, this child's yours. 
they get back together. Roxy is doing really well in court until Velma shows up. And Velma has Roxy's diary, and she starts reading incriminating things that Roxy has written down because she is doing this for amnesty in her own murder case. Then the way that Flynn gets out of it is he says that Harrison, that attorney general or whatever he was, detective, planted it. Uh, And we get the song A Tap Dance, which is Billy Flynn tap dancing his way through this about this diary being planted um, because of course it works for Harrison to get a conviction and it also works for Velma to get off on the case blah 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 and lo and behold Roxy is acquitted seconds after Roxy is acquitted there are gunshots and we find out that there is a woman who shot her husband and her own lawyer outside of the courthouse all of the reporters rush out they no longer give a about Roxy Hart or Velma Kelly or anything happening in this courtroom. They said, that's the next big story. So they run out there. Roxy's basically like, what the hell happened? This was supposed to be my big break. Flynn is like, well, you know, it is what it is. You know, uh, you're free. So you're welcome. Like, congratulations. And Amos is loyal this whole time. He's like, he's like, I'm going to be a father. I'm, I'm, I still love you. Like, let's go home. And Roxy's like, you're such an idiot. I was never pregnant. Like, get get the fuck away from me basically and it's cruel like it's it is it is cold and cruel then we kind of get this like flash forward like in time and roxy has successfully pursued her vaudeville career um but like limitedly we get nowadays which i love the lyrics you can uh like the life you're living you can live the life you like And then there's always a political joke that I don't think a lot of people get anymore because it is very dated, but it's, you can even marry Harry and mess around with Ike, um, which is referring to, uh, obviously, presidents. There are the lyrics, in 50 years or so, things are going to change, you know, oh, but it's heaven nowadays. We kind of get this, like, that, that somber vaudeville moment with Roxy. And Velma is also, we realize, has been rather limited in her success uh but that's how we also find out velma's now free congrats velma also got off which is great and velma reapproaches roxy about doing this double act together roxy initially is like no and then she's like listen we can like perform together even if we don't like each other and like i think it could be a big thing and so our ending is them on stage and it's like this beautiful just like uh, gold like curtain shimmer shinny shimmy which is in the stage musical we have a giant gold shimmer that comes down for this number and we get the continuation of nowadays that they sing together it is a lot more upbeat um, and it goes into the hot honey rag which is orchestra and them dancing and they get a standing ovation from the audience and we see billy flynn um, matron mama morton and we see the jurors and the other acquitted murderesses in the audience meaning again nobody else died except Catalin Holinsky slash Hunyak the only one who did not actually murder her husband and that's how the movie ends I think it's beautiful perfect my one thing is that the whole ending of this is a differentiation from the source material of the stage musical razzle dazzle is actually a number that happens before the trial 
it is actually the number that takes us into the trial. There's a conversation between Billy and Roxy where she's like, I'm scared. And he said, don't worry about it, kid. You've got nothing to worry about. It's all a circus. He snaps his fingers and then he sings Razzle Dazzle talking about what he's going to do. Then we get into courtroom. Courtroom is all dialogue underscored by percussion and uh, like the rhythm section, basically. And it is all like all of the percussion are hitting jokes. There's horns, there's slide whistles, there's um, a bass that's like boom, 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 boom as Amos walks away from the from the stand. Um, and it is very, very fast. Courtroom is notoriously the thing that everybody fucks up when they go to have to mix this show. Um, it is the thing that I was told to focus on first stepping up uh, into this position because it is a beast of of a scene. It's it's seven pages basically of just boom, 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 like that. Yeah, um, it's insane. So there is no song in courtroom. Razzle Dazzle does not happen in courtroom. And also a tap dance actually happens in act one before we get introduced to Billy Flynn. Uh, a tap dance is the song that happens before All I Care About. And it's actually Roxy asking Amos for the $5,000 to get Billy Flynn as her attorney. I thought that it was interesting that they decided to put a tap dance into the courtroom scene. Also, Velma Kelly never appears during courtroom. Um, She is not a part of Roxy's trial in any way, shape, or form. Uh, She's just fully not in those seven pages. So that whole like diary thing, um, that does not exist in the original source material either. That's not that's not a real thing. But that is that is the only kind of like chunk of this movie that is vastly different. Everything else is pretty much how it happens. Um, we don't see Velma going back to Roxy to ask if she wants to do like the the double vaudeville thing with them again. Basically, like we get courtroom ending, Roxy being set free, her telling Amos that the fake pregnancy happened, whatever. She sings the beginning part of nowadays. She leaves the stage. And then there's a MC moment of like, ladies and gentlemen, like blah, 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 introducing Roxy and Velma. And then they go into the ending of nowadays into the hot honey rag. One other thing. So they did cut a few, a few musical numbers uh, from this, which I don't mind. The ones that they cut, I actually don't, I don't hate that they cut them. But there are two kind of like things that I think are worth mentioning. Number one, uh, Mary Sunshine is not played by a woman in the stage musical. Uh, It's always the big reveal. Um, Mary Sunshine is played by a man in drag, and uh, he sings countertenor for the entirety of a song called A Little Bit of Good. There is a reveal during courtroom. uh, Part of how Billy Flynn gets Roxy off is he goes, you've heard my um, colleague call her temptress, call her adulteress, call her murderess, but things are not always as they appear to be. And Mary Sunshine takes off her wig because she's been in cahoots with Billy Flynn this whole time. And it is revealed that Mary Sunshine is a man. Take that how you will. In modern times, depending on the direction, it toes with transphobic just a little bit. I I, I do think it's done in a way where it's not offensive, but it does shock our audiences heavily. Um, There are some people who are like, oh, haha. And there are some people who are like, I had no idea what the fuck just happened Uh, because um, that character does this little aria as they're taking their wig off where it starts off super high in that countertenor that sounds like a soprano woman singing and then it drops down into like a low baritone slash bass 
uh, and as you look at this person, you're like, oh, you're a man. So they, A, didn't have the song A Little Bit of Good, so Christine Baranski did not sing, and also Christine Baranski is a cisgendered woman who was cast as Mary Sunshine. So that was interesting. Uh, They also, there's a song called Class that in the stage musical happens right before the sentencing of Roxy, but after the main like courtroom part. Um, And it's Mama and Velma. And they're singing this song called Class. And it is the softest song in the whole musical. And it is intentional because it's this really like beautiful orchestration. It's all like it's it's very piano heavy and um light and uh it's them singing but what they're singing is very crude um and so they're singing this song about like whatever happened to class but they're saying things like uh now every person you watch has got his brains in his crotch um like there's a line that's like um now, no one even says oops when they're passing their gas. They're saying like, Jesus Christ. They're like, all you hear about is theft and rape. Like they're, they're um, any girl or touch your privates for a deuce. Like these are all lyrics that are happening within this song while they're sitting there being very like dainty ladies, but they're being dainty ladies while saying things that are very not dainty or quote unquote ladylike. And I found out it was filmed, but it was removed from the release and it was uh, a deleted scene on the DVD that came out for this movie and there was a like a limited I think it was it was 2005 on NBC and they included class in that showing on the on the extended version on NBC when they when they premiered it but outside of that uh it was cut from the movie um and it does not exist so like when you watch it on TV now or anything like that um it is not it is not included, but they did record class. So that would have been um, that would have been Catherine Zeta-Jones and uh, Queen Latifah singing a duet. I mean, I guess it makes sense for the momentum, but it's always interesting with changes like that. Yeah, I would say the mom- it actually does very drastically shift the momentum of the stage musical as well, but it's intentional because what you get is actually Mary Sunshine is kind of the introduction into the song because she's giving the uh, radio report like of the courtroom. And so what you get is it's actually Mama and Velma listening to the radio report of what's happening in the courtroom. And so them singing class is a response to the things that they're hearing Roxy Hart is doing on the stand. I know I rambled uh, so long about this movie. I clearly have a passion for it, uh, probably because it is my job currently. Yeah, it's it's like half your life right now. <laughs> it, it, it's 90% of my life right now. I'm on a one-week layoff, uh, and I'm so happy to be home. But yeah, I, I think it's just, it's a solid movie musical. It won Best Picture for the Academy Award, and Catherine Zeta-Jones won Best Supporting Actress, um, it won Best Art Direction, Best Costume Design, Best Film Editing, and it won Best Sound. So I, I clearly it was a it was a a fan favorite or an Academy favorite. It's it's very interesting because it's like you know like this this movie was made to make money for sure. Like that's Chicago is known as the show that makes money. It is now the longest running show on Broadway because Phantom closed and it, I guarantee you will run one day longer than Phantom ran in its totality to say that it was the longest running. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Like it's, it's notorious, but it's also like, it's such, when you look at the story itself, it's such a weird story. 
because you're like, what are they trying to talk about? Because in theater, there's always a point. It's usually not just for like a quick cash grab for some of the work that continues to get done because the the original artist had intent and like knowing it's based off a stage play that wasn't a musical about these two women, partially based off of a real story from a news reporter in Chicago is what I was reading about this so-called mania that was happening in Chicago during the 1920s of women killing their husbands and uh, being sentenced to uh, to death and how, how many of them were acquitted of their crimes and it was just this like weird news cycle of Chicago. I don't know how much that's true or not. I didn't super dive into it because it sounds like a lot of news mania that the people were lacking of the time because, you know, it's it's the 1920s, you know, like the depression's about to happen. It's post-World War One. Like America's in this weird place alone. So it's just it's very interesting. Theater is is. Two main things, right? We learn this in theater school all the time. It's to educate and to entertain, create debate. And so I think here, this particular piece of theater, because the movie is theater. The movie is a is a piece of theater. Like that's just facts. And I think I think it definitely entertains. I think the education here is is a commentary on like the media. You know, we see this all the time. It's the person who's in the media who we're watching the trial of is having a very different experience from Joe Schmo down in, I don't know, South Dakota, who is on trial for the exact same thing, but they're going to have a very different outcome. Right. It's sadly a timeless thing because we see it to this day because, I mean, it's worse, I feel like now because of the advent of social media and the internet and the super easy access to information and how quick it can get out. So, Lots of information, whether or not it's true and confirmed factual uh, or not, gets spread. And it's hard to, yeah, it's it's a it's a bombardment cacophony of lots of information. And it's hard to sort through all of it, it feels like at times. Oh, also, my last thing is it was only a $45 million budget and they made over $300 million in the box office. So they also just did very well. Chandler, let's talk about your movie because I, the amount of times that Daria, my my girlfriend, probably heard me go, Chandler, what the fuck? <laughs> As I was watching this movie, um, should have been a drinking game. So let's let's chat about it. Okay, so the the musical film I chose was Phantom of the Paradise that came out in 1974, directed by Brian De Palma, who is known as the director for Carrie. Right. So this is he did this before Carrie. It is uh, it stars Paul Williams, who I don't think many people know who he is anymore, but he is a well-known songwriter. He's I don't know if he's still currently president, but he was president at one point of ASCAP, which is a rights holding company that makes sure music artists get their paid dues when people use their music. And it's it's really good association. Like ASCAP and BMI are these well-known organizations to help artists. Also, uh, William Finley stars in this, as well as Jessica Harper. Those are some like kind of the big well-known, but they're not as well-known anymore, I would argue, because they, they were part of this kind of cult film era of alternative 
kind of grouping of weird films of the 70s. I'm shocked. I'm shocked that he got fucking Carrie handed to him after this craziness that I just watched. Someone had a lot of faith in this man. Stephen King did. Don't you know? Story for another time. Story for another time. <laughs> this movie is a trip. I don't know if you could have guessed this, Adam, but I uh, I saw this movie at the ripe age of 17, I think it was. So it had a huge impact. Oh, did it? Crazy. Here's what I said. This is This is what I would like the people to know. This, to me, felt like Rocky Horror Picture Show for non-queer people. That is... Okay, Chandler just made a motion that he's like, exactly. Okay, great. I'm glad that that's my one sentence synopsis of this. It's pretty much, yeah, it's right there. I mean, it's, it has different commentaries because Rocky Horror is about, you know, B-movies and, you know, how audiences interact with art and stuff like that. Well, this is similar of how audiences interact with art, but more about a criticism of the uh, current state of the music industry, which, you know, arguably hasn't changed a whole lot. I think that's a theme that our movies have in common, is that they were commentating on, like, their very period pieces, but also the things that they were commenting on have not changed. Yeah, they've just gotten worse or snowballed into these bigger unforeseen problems at the time. So essentially this movie is largely, largely inspired by the the story of Faust as well as Phantom of the Opera, the original novelization from like 1901. Phantom of the Opera, as many people know as the musical, does not exist yet. It's, it's interesting because it's not like your traditional musical because the music is like a function, but yet is so storytelling capable as well. It's not like a traditional musical where it breaks like Chicago, where it's literally out of this world that it's set in. It's part of the world. It felt more along the lines of like, um, there's a distinction between musicals and a play with music. This felt more in, in the world to me of like a Peter and a Stark in the Starcatcher, like a, a play with music where it's like you could take the music out and you still have a storyline that's all the way through and you're not necessarily missing anything, but like, the music is very important still. In the, yeah. So the movie kind of starts out with this like weird exposition that's a voiceover that then immediately goes into song and it pretty much tells you what this movie is going to be about through song and quick narration. Like it's like, here it is. Join us on this ride because it's going to get crazy. Yep. <laughs> and it's essentially the, the story of Faust. It's about someone who signs a soul contract to you know, gain immortality or ultimate power. We think it's going to be centered around this really quirky janitor guy, Winslow. But we turn out there's a plot twist later in the movie that like throws everything more in a wrench. And it's kind of like blindsiding, which is kind of crazy. But we have this character, Swan, who is played by Paul Williams, and he is this music producer. He runs Death Records. It was originally supposed to be called Swan Song Enterprises, but because that sounded too similar to Swan Song Records, which is Led Zeppelin's own label, they had to quickly change it in post. And so that's why there's all these like weird graphical things everywhere, which seems jarring because like there's a lot of like they filmed it with those words and then in post they like overlaid it with like this like bird on its back. I was wondering what that was. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. I love the original idea better. I wish they would have kept it. It was issues with, you know, Led Zeppelin, I guess. <laughs> sure, of course, yeah. 
which is ironic considering the the movie. So yeah, this movie starts out with this fictional band, the Juicy Fruits, singing this classic 60s song-esque thing that's very like Beach Boys, Beatles sounding because it's like popular music and everyone's trying to go for that sound because the music industry made so much money off of that sound and everything. So you just got this group that sounds like a bunch of surfer dudes talking about their cars and stuff like that and girls. And it's just this like really wacky song of a guy they know who falls in love for a girl but loses the girl or something. And it's it's wacky. The, and their vibe also just, they did a great job, at which I know you'll get into, because these three guys play three different like groups technically but they did a great job at casting three actors who somehow managed to look out of place in all three aesthetics Uh, (laughs) (laughs) the song of theirs ends in death but like while they're singing this like they have this like weird stage presence and like they get into a fight with some random audience members while singing and you're like what is going on but like as we're like watching this song being performed we cut to like this like box office room that's overseeing everything. And this guy who's talking to the camera, which is some character we don't know, which we learn is Swan. Swan kind of stays mysterious for like the first bit of the movie. And this guy is like this scouting uh, talent guy. And he's asking for a favor. And it's very like asking the devil for a favor which is very key here because this becomes a very common thing in this movie with characters of asking Swan for favors and Swan feels like he's the devil throughout making deals with the devil. So the Juicy Fruits finish their set and they're at this break and then this guy, Winslow, our main character that we follow, pops up on stage with a piano and he starts playing a song and it's this beautiful song that is inspired by the tale Faust. And Faust is a well-known story of a man who sells his soul to the devil for immortality, power, and love. And ultimately is a huge mistake and causes so many problems. (laughs) It's a great, great epic tale. So I recommend reading Faust if you are into that kind of thing. But like, it's a lot. It's a big old book. It goes on for a while. It's part of that classic literature from this swan is like this music sounds great and this talent scout is like but that guy he looks miserable and and swan's like i don't care about the guy the music i want the music and so we already know like this man cares about making money off a brilliant sound like he recognizes good music but he has his own agenda Another connection is white gloves between our movies because our first introduction to to this entity is just this white glove pointing out at Winslow while he was playing the piano. So this talent scout goes to Winslow and he's like, "Yo, Swan likes your stuff. You got you got a song you we can like you know mess around with and stuff." And like Winslow kind of like goes off the chain, and this is where we get a little hint of like Winslow has anger issues, and that's a mild statement. Like he he can lash out like crazy because this is his like magnum opus it's not just like a bunch of rock and roll hits so winslow ends up handing some music off to this talent scout who takes it to swan hoping like his music will be you know uh given to the world and he people can hear his music and everything 
months go by. I believe it's like four months, four to six months go by or something. Winslow hasn't heard anything back. So he decides to like try to go to Swan offices and try to talk to Swan. Gets ejected multiple times because the his name is in a special folder that is do not interact with. So we have this kind of like montage sequence of like Winslow trying to talk to Swan about his music. Next thing you know, Winslow's trying to go to his mansion. The Swanage. Where auditions are being held for a singer. But we learned that it's the talent scout just trying to uh, get ladies for Swan for, you know, sexual reasons and not actually for talent. And it's it is a commentary of the music industry in a sense. That scene was like actually difficult to like watch for a second though because they didn't i don't know they they definitely made that forceful but that's common of a lot of films in the 70s when it comes to like sexploitation stuff they're not tongue and tongue in cheek about it they just full-blown is like no this is happening because it was such a big problem that like these you know not hollywood filmmakers like made awareness to it in this way so it's it was great that like artistically it was done to prove a point to the industry, but also, yes, it's very hard to sit through. But while Winslow's there, seeing all these ladies auditioning, he runs into Phoenix, who he loves her voice. She wants the stardom, which is another thing our movies are connected with, of a character who wants stardom based off their talents. And Winslow loves her voice. And she learns that like, oh, Winslow wrote this music and she like wants to help. She seems like a genuine character compared to all these other people around him who are like, oh, this guy, nah, nah, he's not part of Swan because Swan's got a reputation being in the early film narration at the top of the movie. He was like a multi-platinum music producer by the age of like 15 or 17 or something like that. He's like a whiz making his like first multi-million record. So then... Uh, of course, Winslow gets booted out again. He then tries to infiltrate again, dressed up as a woman to try to talk to Swan, which, you know, doesn't age super well. But I feel like he he was literally there just to talk to Swan. Like, you feel like the way William Finley plays this character, like, you understand the motivation. It's never to, like, take advantage or anything. He's just like, he just wants to understand what's happening to what's his. So then Winslow gets thrown out, beaten, and then corrupt police arrest him because they they drop charges of possession of crack cocaine on him. So he goes to prison while he's in drag. So they're also making all sorts of like fruity jokes towards him. It's clear that like there's corruption in this world and it's heavily seeped everywhere to take advantage of innocent people. Then while in prison, he loses his teeth because to quote the the prison health people, sooner or later, your teeth will be a hindrance to you. So might as well take them all out as if they're a disease to replace them all. So he gets metal teeth and they're like these garish, like silvery metallic teeth. Pur- they were kind of purple, black too. Yeah, um, really nasty. And then we, we cut time later, like probably months later where he's just working on this assembly line with a bunch of other prisoners, like putting together bingo boxes, which is really odd for prison labor. But, you know, it'd be what it be. This whole sequence made me honestly feel like I was tripping 
like or that I was really sick and like coming in and out of consciousness and then somehow missed chunks of the movie. Like this all moved very quickly and was very disorienting with not in a bad way uh, with how it was like edited together in the sequencing. And there's this just like chaotic underscoring happening as well. That's very classically sounding. It's like more of like an orchestra, but it's just like it's craziness. And like if, to me, it felt very like a lot of the style of Carmen like orchestrally was what it felt like to me and some of the craziness of Carmen. So he hears over the radio while working on this assembly line about Swan and his new uh, music of Faust and how it's going to open his new theater called The Paradise, hence the name Phantom of the Paradise. Winslow just loses it and he attacks a guard breaks out of prison he becomes like this like superhuman being honestly and he he starts just trying to find swan he beats people up at his offices then he gets to the record pressing plant where he's going to try and destroy all the record pressing of his music so it doesn't get accessed anywhere but then he gets caught and he gets trapped and he gets stuck and he gets his face pressed between the pressing of a record machine and so he becomes facially disfigured and then falls into a river and so we just kind of like cut to some time later and we we get this really weird i wouldn't be surprised if this inspired halloween but it's a first person account of winslow breaking into the paradise and sneaking in and dressing himself as this character and it's got this very notable mask it's like partially like an owl kind of inspired silver mask um it's well known whether or not you may know it's from this movie or not it's like it's a it's stylistically like what's known from this movie so what's interesting is um my girlfriend's brother is really into anime and he was talking about this particular one and i'm totally blanking on what it's called right now but i remember it starts with a I'm pretty sure like berserk or something like that berserk yes okay the guy there's a there's a guy who has like a mask like this in it and and I actually saw that before I saw this and so when I saw this I was like that this is weirdly similar to that character's design and then after watching this movie I was like I can 100% understand why that was a choice because they had very similar character arcs in terms of like anger and feelings and the choices they made resulting in them becoming like these monsters. Yeah. So yeah, we see this transformation of Winslow into what I'm going to keep calling now as the Phantom because he he's no longer really Winslow to me. He, he has lost his humanity because he just seeks out revenge now to the point that like a rehearsal is happening on stage at the Paradise with the Juicy Fruit still trying to beach boyify his music and he plants a bomb on this car that explodes on stage and injures a bunch of people. And it freaks out Swan. And we finally actually kind of like start to see Swan. We saw Swan's face the first time when he got kicked out, uh, when Winslow got kicked out of the mansion cross-dressing. Uh, that's when we kind of first really saw Swan's face. But now you kind of see more of Swan's face as he's around the paradise. So then we follow Swan, who's going into a secret room within the paradise through a mirror. We learn that like Swan captures everything on video and audio tape. Like he's weird and maniacally that way. And as he leaves his secret room, a phantom catches him and threatens his life. And when uh, Swan's like, 
whoa, 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 Winslow, Winslow, let's stop fighting each other and work together. I know you're a great artist. Let's do it together. And they make this new agreement. And so they do new casting. They get We get Phoenix back again for auditions. And she actually truly auditions for once. And we get this really beautiful song. She's got Jessica Harper, beautiful voice. Love her. I don't know if you know it, but she's also in the movie Shock Treatment playing Janet. Shock Treatment is the not a sequel nor a prequel, but an equal to Rocky Horror Picture Show. So still Richard O'Brien, but it's just like same universe kind of, but alternate universe. But at the yeah, weird artsy nonsense. <laughs> so we yeah, we see her sing and Swan likes her, but she's too perfect for him. So he hides from Winslow that she just is going to become a backup dancer and not the muse that is going to sing Winslow's music because Winslow has lost his voice. Um, and so then we cut to this really visually cool recording studio with all these knobs and synthesizers plugged in and these wooden cabinets surrounding him. Which was super cool. That's a real thing. That's Tonto. And it's still like a thing to this day. So this is the Tonto Synthesizer. It's an acronym for the original new Timbrel Orchestra. And it was put together in cooperation with the Synthesizer Moog Company because it was Malcolm Cecil and Robert uh, Margaleff. I hope I said that right. There are these recording engineers and music producers, and they kind of put this giant synthesizer machine together. And it's just super, super cool. And they've made some music. There's like only a couple albums, but it's been used like Stevie Wonder used this a lot for a lot of his when he was early signed to Motown. Like he talked to these guys and they they created sounds from Tonto for Stevie Wonder and stuff like that. I think a member of Devo bought it and now owns it. It this thing is like legendary and it's like been used on a lot of popular music, but no one really knows it unless you're like in the know of like music creation and stuff. Super cool machine. Super cool. So Winslow is like makes a a deal with Swan in blood like the devil to create music until his death, essentially. And Swan locks him into this room to constantly write music because they need to open the paradise in a week and he needs him to finish the music. And so then we kind of just get this like montage sequence of him writing music, uh, Swan being manipulative to the shows coming together. And then we get auditions for the new singer in this really new way of doing it, which is like in this dark room with Swan sat in the center of this giant gold record table. Which, oh my God, that image was, that was such a dope shot. That was, that alone, I'm like, how much money was spent building that scenic piece? I miss the visual style of older movies that just went, We'll make it in the set and we'll make it work because it's going to look so cool. And that just doesn't happen anymore because of budgets and, you know, everyone writes it off to like CGI and stuff, but it's just not the same anymore sometimes, you know, like that was just like beautiful and like so ego trip driven of Swan. And so he goes around and he starts trying to audition new groups to try to sing Winslow's music. And he comes across this what I call pop punk poser of the 70s, Beef. His name is Beef. 
you can wonder what that kind of, you know, is making fun of. And this guy is like, he's definitely more of an actor than a music artist kind of thing. And he loves what he does, right? Like, he's not like completely evil. He just knows the image he's pushing. So we kind of cut to like the end of the writing music and we start seeing like there's been a lot of rehearsals with Beef and we see Phoenix is now like a backup singer and she's like fed up with the hypocrisy of the of all these false promises and stuff like that. During the end of the montage, Swan's been preparing to brick Winslow into his new music prison. And so they brick him with a literal, they build a brick wall, a very like task of Amontillado. Like Winslow's also been like given a bunch of like medications and stuff to keep him working and like mess with his perception of things. And then out of nowhere, he wakes from his like fugue state of being under medication and stuff, realizes he's trapped and that Phoenix isn't singing his music, which I don't really know how. It's just, I don't know. He's just a other being at this point. He's, he's, it's not that he ever like, developed superpowers but also now he had low-key like kind of has superpowers he screams and this bellows through the whole paradise that like beef hears it in his dressing room he freaks out and he's like "Uh -uh, uh-uh uh-uh i'm leaving like crazy people but he gets convinced to stay because he's given drugs because it's a commentary on how drug use is used to manipulate musical acts in the industry to do their jobs and stuff like that so then the phantom breaks out and like we see like this brick wall just shattered and like the metal door like broken out of like a caged animal got out he's just like racing through the paradise and he threatens beef's life and beef leaves like he tries to get out of there but then is convinced yet again to go back in because he was like no like the phantom came and got me like i'm not mm -mm, not staying here anymore i'm out not worth it but he gets convinced to continue to go perform. And we get this really weird number that the Juicy Fruits are back, but they're dressed completely different again. They're called like the un- undead something that I don't know. It credits them at the end. We don't find out until literally like the credit scene what their names were. But yeah, everything like the whole set design and everything is German expressionism, which I love, but it's really avant-garde-esque it's bizarre it's bizarre and it's like a frankenstein monster story that's kind of happening through song and faust at the same time it's it's trying to be a rock opera on stage like essentially is what we're seeing a rock opera beef gets he has his entrance as like the frankenstein monster which is like clearly like a calling to that but also like it's got vibes to like rocky horror here as well this beautiful monster who is kind of a little bit ambiguous of which way he he swings even though he's very adamant that he's straight he's very adamant that he's straight but it's like are you though like it's okay it's okay if you're not yeah and so we have this number and then we see the phantom get infuriated and we see him scour through the theater and throws a bolt of neon lightning from the sky to strike Beef down and light him on fire. And I kid you not, it is a lightning bolt made out of neon light. Yes, blue blue neon wiring. The audience is going crazy. They're loving it. They just saw a death on stage. They all think it's theater, whatever. That's commentary of audiences, I feel, too. 
and Phoenix gets thrusted on the stage because the people who know what's up are freaking out because it's like if Phoenix doesn't sing, this crazy man- maniac is going to kill us all. So then Phoenix sings and she becomes a hit. I mean, she's not initially confident, but then she becomes a hit on stage and it's this beautiful number. And Winslow, who also kills a poor spot op who is just doing his job. And so he spots Phoenix and as she's doing her number and that finishes the night. And this is apparently part one of two of the opening of the paradise is what we find out. Winslow kind of steals Phoenix and brings her to the rooftop, which is very Phantom of the Opera esque, of course. And he's trying to warn her not to make a deal with Swan. Like, Swan is the devil. Like, don't do it, or you'll become like me. Like, he will destroy everything you are. And she is too enamored with the new fame and stardom she has that she dismisses him. Like, she first can't believe it's Winslow, but then sees him, but is like, shocked and taken aback because he has become a visual monster. It's terrifying. I mean, he hasn't been doing great, honestly. He has become a monster by the actions he's made, for sure. Oh, he's he's not a, he's not a human by emotion anymore or by, like, literal physicality. But Phoenix dismisses him and then goes back to the Swanage and has a night with Swan, and it corrupts the Phantom even further because he really creepily watches from a skylight, but like Swan knows he's watching and is recording him watching yes, them. Yes, that was what fucked me up. I was like, this is weird. I mean, a, I feel like it's a lot of commentary of voyeurism that like we as audience members have as well. Like it's it's very on the nose for sure for as wacky this movie is. Winslow tries to kill himself. He he stabs himself on the rooftop because he feels like he's lost all purpose and everything. And Swan shows up on the rooftop with an umbrella out of nowhere and is like, oh, Winslow, you thought you could kill yourself? No, no. Our contract expires when I do. And so Winslow tries to stab Swan and he's like, oh, but you can't kill me. He says so in the contract. So it's like, this is the devil is what we of the audience can see now. Uh, and so Winslow now has this wound that Swan does say that if he does die, that wound will immediately open up and it'll be your death too. So it looks like our fates are intertwined. So it's very poetic and everything. So then we we kind of just go to like night two of the paradise and the crowd is going crazy. It's like nonsense. Like the whole movie just kind of goes off the rails visually and sonically like it's overwhelming winslow gets into swan's secret room of recordings and finds like this tape that is about all of the deals and he learns that swan himself made a deal with the actual devil like swan's not the devil he made a deal with the actual devil through a mirror of himself because he was going to kill himself because he didn't want to see himself age so it's very Dorian Gray now because the devil's like you have to watch this every day and if this piece of film perishes you perish so it's got Dorian Gray vibes here as well of the man who asked for immortality also we learn as Winslow's watching all these tapes and stuff all the other deals Swan has made and he's made a new one with Phoenix for marriage 
commitment immortality. It's weird and it's and also like she was super drunk and he basically like pricked her finger for her to make the deal. So that was shitty. Very much so. Uh, and the whole stage of the paradise for this second act of this show is a marriage that's supposed to happen between Phoenix and Swan. And so Winslow goes to stop it. It's this just cacophony of like just craziness of like both the audience, like literally like becoming part of the show, like getting on stage and being part of it as Swan rises out from the trap of the stage. Um, his He's wearing the silver mask and that gets pulled off and we see this like disfigured burning face and Phoenix is freaking out and she's trying to run and Winslow shows up and like stabs Swan and then audience members get involved because they're probably all high on drugs and they don't know what's going on. Oh man, just the 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 group mentality that happened as Swan is dying, Winslow starts dying and bleeding everywhere and Swan starts getting carried out like Jesus kind of over people as he's bleeding all over them and Winslow starts trying to crawl out of the craziness and his mask gets taken off and we see this like gross disfigured prosthetic of like an eyeball falling on of his face like torn apart and phoenix is like like stepping in a back and like in shock and doesn't know what's going on like she's like starting to become sober of like reality and everything and then she realizes what's happened and goes to try to cover Winslow, even though he's long gone and dead. And then the movie just kind of ends in this like crazy music number that just showcases all the cast and like summarizes all the characters journeys. I don't even know. So one of those moments that I, I loved in this movie was when Winslow was crawling, the audience members that started crawling alongside him because it further showed that like, they're like, oh, this is all a performance. This is all art. This is all something that we get to be like a part of now. Like, so like, yes, drugs and like, yes, mob mentality, but also just that commentary of like, oh, it's our turn. Okay. Like none of this is real because it nothing's ever real because this is art. And like, th so they just start crawling alongside him and Winslow's got this like pained, horrible expression on his face like as he's trying to crawl towards phoenix and then you have these just like high youngins like crawling on either side of him like also trying to make equally weird faces because they think it's like a part of the show yeah it's it's a crazy trip at the end and you, yeah you kind of get stunned of like what did i just watch i don't know why but it's one of my favorite like over the top artsy kind of music movies I've, I've come across and I might be weird. I mean, I might be a product of a different time. You know, sometimes I feel like I'm not born in the right decade, but you know, it'd be what it be. <laughs> but yeah, this movie is just crazy. But like it shows like early Brian De Palma and his filmmaking style. Cause like he goes on to make Carrie and just like two years after this fun fact, Sissy Spacek was the film set dresser. And she's the one who plays Carrie's mom. There's a lot of like, oh, people in the 70s who were like not like directly part of the Hollywood system anymore because this is that era of like Hollywood has lost the Hayes Code and stuff like that. And like they don't have rules anymore for movies. And so 
all these counterculture filmmakers and stuff. You know, it's like, you know, Taxi Driver and other movies like that of the time where it's society doesn't care about people right now and the government doesn't care about you. Like we need to be aware of this kind of mentality. Yeah. So this movie is just that crazy. I like some other fun facts that injection mold pressing for the at the record plant was a real one that they actually put his head between, but everyone was sure that it was going to be safe with all the extra foam padding and the chunks they put in place to stop it from crushing too far. Turns out it all started to fail, and so they quickly pulled that actor out in time before he actually got crushed. Yeah, William Finley almost got his head crushed in a record-pressing plant machine. Terrifying. He's okay, though. Oh, my God. He, like, he had concern initially, and everyone's like, we're doing all these safety things. We think we're going to be okay, but like those machines do not stop for anything, apparently. Holy crap. And then a more uplifting fun fact about this movie and more influences it's had. I think this was from a, a Guardian interview with Daft Punk. There was a comment that uh, these guys, they watched this movie a lot when it was in of movie theaters in France when they were kids, which is like probably about a decade after the movie came out because this movie has had a weird in theaters history. It was really popular, I think, in like Manitoba, Canada, like in a specific city that it sold the most there and it like played year round like for like a decade there or something. Yeah, like some audiences like really love this movie and it had like a lot of cult following that way. And so like the duo Daft Punk watched this movie over like 20 times as kids when they were like off from school in France when they like first got to know each other and they went to go see movies a lot. Yeah. Good for them, I guess. Yeah, but you can see the inspiration of them deciding to yeah, wear helmets. Absolutely. And the and the techno music with alongside that synthesized voice. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's Phantom of the Paradise in a nutshell. It's a weird 70s rock opera trip. Hey, two very different movies, two very, I will say, good movies, even though yours is is not, it, you know, like if I, if you know, it's not my cup of tea in the morning, particularly personally, but I did enjoy it. Like it was a good watch. So, yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree with that. Yeah, it was, it was interesting to see a, I, I feel like I saw Chicago before, but I can't quite place if i saw that movie adaptation of chicago but it was like it wasn't terrible it was fun definitely hollywood money yeah did. yeah also are you in colorado or texas right now i'm in texas right now you're in texas i have three texas dates uh well not i have more than i have more than three dates i have three texas locations we should see if any of them are near you we could maybe finally record one of these in person what a concept uh and you could see chicago uh, <laughs> yeah i love that that'd be great anyways yeah so next up is more breaking bad yes oh i can't wait to talk about it it's gonna be crazy like i mean after those first four episodes like it's like where are we gonna go from here where are we gonna go yeah so it's episodes five through seven of season three so that's what's up next on our agenda but in the meantime if you liked this podcast please give us a like follow subscribe favorite all those fun things leave us comments for ideas i mean i'm open to like almost anything 
at this point. Throw stuff at us, honestly. And then let us know if you want us to, like, jump back and talk more about some of these movies, because, like, we don't talk about everything. We, we do, you know, skirt around. And then we'll remember after the fact that we had, like, a whole chunk of things that we just missed in our notes, and we're like, oh, okay, well... <laughs> Maybe a part two someday in the future, like a revisit, you know? But yeah, I've been Chandler. I've been Adam. And we'll see you next time. Cheers. Cheers.